0: Hello, my name is Peter Abiel, and welcome to the Robot Brains Podcast, a show about AI and robots and the brilliant brains who make them. The COVID-19 pandemic has reminded all of us how important frontline healthcare workers are. It's also really highlighted the pressure on our doctors and nurses. With past guests, we have talked about how much AI can do for tasks like self-driving cars, image recognition, or recommendations on social media. But over the past 12 months, I know I've definitely thought, wouldn't it be nice if AI robots could also help out in hospitals? Well, in today's episode, I'm very fortunate to sit down with Andrea Tomas, professor of computer science at UT Austin and founder and CEO of Diligent Robotics. Andrea is working on exactly that, robots that help nurses and doctors in hospitals. Andrea, welcome. Welcome. Thanks,
1: Peter. It's great to be here.
0: As I think back of the times we met in the past, the thing that really stands out to me is, I think it's maybe five, six years ago, visiting Georgia Tech. And I remember I walk into your lab and there's this robot called Curie. I remember the amazing thing was that actually I got to interact with the robot. There was a demo with interaction. And I got to teach the robot something. And that really stuck with me because, I mean, in reality, usually robots are quite isolated. They're set up in places where people don't go. And then even if you get to go there, you don't actually interact with them. But that's actually a hallmark of your work. You're bringing robots into the world that we can interact with.
1: That's right. I've been fascinated about this for years. It's, it's really like a passion of mine.
0: You've pioneered the space. And what I'm really curious about as a first question here is, Moxie. Moxie is a robot, as I understand it, that is in hospitals today. What is Moxie? What is it doing there?
1: That's right. Yeah. So Moxie is a robot assistant that is working side by side with nurses and frontline staff to do fetching and delivering tasks, which is really general. But if you go to a hospital, you know, a lot of the nurses and clinicians and people that really should be focused on patients and patient care, they, you know, there's just a lot of tasks that kind of get, you know, fall on their plates. So whether it's running now, there's a lot of grabbing the right PPE to go and enter a patient's room during the pandemic. And there's things that have to go from one side of the hospital to the other, and you don't want to waste a nurse's time doing that. So Moxie's in hospitals today doing a lot of those fetching and delivering tasks for frontline staff.
0: But say we go to a hospital where Moxie is currently active would we run into the robot would we see it or is it working behind the scenes
1: Yeah that I mean that's been a really interesting part of the journey at diligent and bringing Moxie to life is you know as a roboticist we're thinking about the utilitarian like what's the robot doing and who's it doing it for? And so we're very focused on nurses. Like the robot is designed to be taking things from place to place so that nurses and clinicians don't have to. And so that's kind of the end users we were thinking about. And then we get out into market and we start having you know robots in hospitals and we start having all of these patients and patient families interacting with the robot. Obviously the robot's in the hallways, going from place to place. And you think, you know, when you're not somebody who works in a hospital every day, you think, oh, the patients are all in their rooms. Like the robot's not going to see patients, the patients are in their rooms, but no, like the hospital's full of patients and families. And so that's been really fascinating to see what people think of robots roaming down the hall.
0: I got to imagine such a robot's moving around in in the hallway and some kids are maybe visiting their parent in the hospital that they start running after the robot and must be some interesting interactions there.
1: Yeah, we had to actually add some facial expressions and things that the robot does specifically when these interactions come up. It goes into kind of a selfie mode because it will get stopped in the hall to, to for people to take pictures. You'll hear from like, a you know, 75 year old grandmother who says, yeah, I'm, my grandkids like want to come visit me this weekend because they get to see a robot. And I'm you're I'm like the cool grandma that has you know staying at a hospital with a robot.
0: Yeah. So as a grandparent, you can actually get to see your grandchildren more thanks to Moxie being being right <laughs> It's <laughs> really nice benefit there. Wow. Yeah. I was watching some movies of uh, of Moxie and I got to say the face really stands out. It's a robot with a very it's not a human-like face, but it's a very expressive face. And I'm curious what's behind all of that.
1: I mean, this has definitely been a hallmark of my vision of social robots and you know robots that work in human environments. I you know, for a long time have thought that they have to have a face, they have to have a head, they have to have eyes. And if you look back at some of the robots that I've built, or even, you know, back when I was at in Cynthia Brazil's lab at MIT, the robots that we had there that have like these really complicated faces, the journey that I've been on in terms of like robots that have faces is kind of an interesting one, because the robot that I worked on in grad school was this you know, very creature like looking robot that had 30 degrees of freedom. So, yeah, a degree of freedom means a motor. So, I had 30 motors just in the face that were like making all of these facial expressions. It was like pushing some of the skin on the robot's face to go in different facial expressions. So, super complicated. So, then when I moved on from grad school and I was starting my first lab and building my first robot and thinking about, I wanted to have a face, I wanted to have a head. So much of what we think about is like how the robot should engage with people socially with a head. But then we were thinking, do we really need 30 motors? Like, if I'm redesigning this, like, how (laughs) can I reduce any of this complexity? With all the robots that I built at Georgia Tech and UT Austin, um, we still had quite a few degrees of freedom or motors in the head with eyes and eyeballs and ears. And but then finally, when thinking about taking a robot like this to market, you're really thinking like, okay, you know, how do we get the most across with like the simplest form or simplest, you know, least number of motors, it became clear that really the thing that is most useful in that social interaction of a robot navigating a hallway and moving around people is that ability to, you know, pan and look around and provide some kind of a facial expression. So we had this you know, nice combination of the, the head moving around, but then having a digital display of facial expression. So it's been a fun journey to kind of you know, look at what's really needed in that space.
0: So this robot, since it interacts with people, I'm kind of curious, what are some of the most maybe surprising interactions you've you've observed with humans running into the robot and what they do? That's a great question.
1: So, you know, there's a lot of jumping in front of the robot, is it going to run into me and it never does. We have not have <laughs> we've not had any robot run into a person, but there's lots of like fun testing behaviors. Like, you know, it's new for people. They've never seen you don't see robots out in your daily life usually. And so that's really fun for people to kind of have a chance to interact. And then they're usually so the robot doesn't speak English. Uh, you know, Moxie won't say things unless you're in an elevator, then Moxie will let you know what floor uh, it's going to. So usually people are you know, trying to talk to the robot, like you do your Alexa or your Google Home. And that's kind of their first instinct. But then all that Moxie will do is kind of meep back at them. And so then they, have, they get into this like fun like talking and meeping interaction. So it's a lot of personification. It's fun.
0: I think it's very interesting what you mentioned there, that we don't really have robots in our lives. When we look around, probably nobody listening right now would would have too many robots in their home, maybe a vacuum cleaner robot, but at the same time, we've been promised them for a a very long time. Can you say maybe a little bit why it's so hard to give us all a robot in our home and and why then maybe in a hospital they can already help, but not so much yet in our houses?
1: It's so true. I, you know, we've been talking and thinking about robots in movies and books, and we, we all feel like they should be here by now. I think that you know, we're making our way. And if you think about the environments that robots have worked really well in, it's very structured environments like warehouses or manufacturing where the robot can just do the exact same thing in a dumb way almost just kind of the same weld happens every day all day long but in order for robots to really get into people's homes and really be helpful they have to be able to operate in a completely unstructured environment. If I think about you know my kids' bedroom it's nothing like that manufacturing plant nothing is the same every day. So the robot has to be able to like go into my kids' bedroom and deal with a completely different scenario every single day. And so that's really the gap, is we're going from robots that can deal with the exact same scenario the same way every single time, to robots that can deal with a completely different scenario every single time you walk in the door and hospitals are one of these environments that I like to call a semi-structured environment, or it's like somewhere in between. Like if you go into a hospital that you've known you're in a new city and you walk into a hospital and somebody blindfolded you and just said, guess where you are. And you look around, you're going to see some things and be like, this feels like a hospital. I see, I see some things that, you know, the hallways look like, you're like, you can't quite put your finger on it, but you know you're in a hospital. And the same is true for like a hotel, a restaurant, a, you know, coffee shop. So all these places that somebody could blindfold you and you, you could probably guess where you are when, you, when they you know, bring you into this new city, new place. Those are all the first places that we're going to see robots because those are the places that there's like some amount of structure for those robots to, to latch onto.
0: So as I'm thinking about robots and what you just said, I mean, there's the robot body and there's the robot brain. And is, is it fair to say that it's, it's really the brain, the AI part that is holding it back. And then maybe you, you are seeing some ways of making it work in hospitals now, but not yet in homes.
1: I think so. Yeah. Because so much about, well, I mean, I guess I'm biased because I come to robots from a software background. And so maybe if I was more of a mechanical engineer by background, I would think everything was a, a hardware problem. But I do think that, you know, huge way that a robot can have a leg up in an environment is to very accurately perceive the current situation and then very quickly be able to adapt its skills. So both of those are you know, like a, a perception problem and then a machine learning problem. And so so I do think that that's kind of the software solution to, to, bring, to start to bring robots to these semi-structured spaces.
0: So, Andrea, if I was in a hospital where Moxie is working today, what would I see?
1: What you see is... The frontline staff member who can call the robot over and then robot autonomously goes from one point to another, autonomously comes to where that person is, then they can use their badge to swipe and open up one of the locked containers. Um, And that we learned is really important because a lot of what people need to send from place to place they're really wanting to make sure that they know that it got to the right person. And so the fact that you have to kind of swipe your badge and really kind of log in to the robot was an important thing that we learned. So then you send it off. And one of the hallmark things that, that Moxie does is really make use of an arm to increase autonomy. So you see the robot you know, pushing buttons to open doors or swiping a badge to open a door. Under the hood, you see the robots using the laser and camera at the base to build a map of the environment. And that's how the robot knows where it is, and that's how it can plan where to go. It builds up a kind of semantic understanding of what all of the different locations are and what are some of the kind of manipulations and perceptions that it can expect in different places, and then gets to its location and, and drops off. Drops off its delivery, so yeah, that's really what people are using Moxie for every single day. Um, it works uh, 22 hours a day, so we like to say that Moxie works 22 seven. <laughs> so,
0: what does that mean? That that's a funny number, 22. Say more. Uh,
1: so the w- Moxie has to take a deep charge on on the the battery has to do a deep charge for two hours a day. So we let the staff in the hospital decide like whether that's going to be from like one to three in the morning, and then it's working the rest of the time. But it finds its charger like a Roomba and, and charges for two hours a day.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Now, one thing you said there, it uses a laser to navigate.
1: It uses the laser to you know shoot out and measure the distance that it is. From you know, really everything. So if you, when you point to a laser pointer at a wall, that you know, laser pointer stops, at, you know, and you see the dot on the wall. And if that wall was further away, then that laser would go all the way to the dot further away. And so the sensor on you know the laser sensor on the robot is able to to sense how far away that wall is. Then it takes a lot of measurements a lot of times a second, and is able to, to build up a model of exactly where all the obstacles and, and walls are in the building.
0: This is so fascinating. And when I look at this, I can't help but be kind of reminded of some of the things I'm involved in myself, of course, but with Covariant, where we look at robotics for warehouses, and it's almost like the robot is treating the, the hospital as as a warehouse, where, where it's bringing things from one place to another. Is that a reasonable way to think of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, we are doing a lot of materials management and logistics tasks, and hospitals have a lot of challenges with, there's just a lot of things that have to go from place to place, because as a patient in a hospital, you need to have lab work done. You need to get things from pharmacy. You need a new bandage every day. And all of those things that you need as a patient are coming from different places in the hospital. And they're usually pretty far away. And they have processes in place to get things to the nursing unit, like a once a day delivery from pharmacy or a once a day delivery from supply chain, Um, but in the course of a day, there's just a lot of things that aren't normally stocked on a nursing unit that somebody has to go run and get.
0: And then, of course, it has the additional challenge that it, unlike a typical warehouse, there's a lot of people to interact with. Yeah. Because I don't think any warehouse robots that I've seen have such a cute face. <laughs> looks at you. It's, it's totally different. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, we definitely wanted to, I mean, that's, I think one of the things we liked about the, the challenge of putting a robot in a hospital environment, as opposed to a more industrial setting is you have to solve that, that problem of being around people and, and you have to get that right or the robot's just going to be in the way and it's, it's not going to be helpful. Like the only way the robot can be helpful is to kind of seamlessly fit into the flow of, of what's going on.
0: Right. And so in a lot of your work, and I don't know if that's the case for Moxie, I'm curious that your robots learn, they learn from interaction with humans. Has, has Moxie been doing any learning at all?
1: Uh, so Moxie does learn about the, some of the different tasks and things that need to be done in the hospital from, from demonstrations. Currently, those demonstrations happen in an onboarding process that you know, our staff is very involved. You know, eventually, one day, our vision is that end users like nurses and clinicians could be kind of teaching and reteaching Moxie what to do.
0: But am I understanding this correctly then that if a hospital gets a Moxie robot, this hospital could be quite different from other hospitals that already have one and have different things Moxie needs to do. And then there is a session where you can teach Moxie what you need in your own hospital.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so it's kind of like we were talking about that, you know, every hospital has a lab or a place where they keep all the supplies. But just because you know how to navigate one lo- hospital location, you don't know how to do that task in another place. Um, and so we do have a, an onboarding session where you take Moxie on a tour of here's all the work you're going to do.
0: Is Moxie truly autonomous or is there somebody behind the scenes who, who is actually steering it at times?
1: It's an autonomous robot, but we do have the ability to remotely supervise And if needed, yeah, most of the time it's autonomous, but then you have the ability to, you can remotely supervise and decide to, you know, pause the robot for any reason or, you know, intervene.
0: One thing I'm curious about is what if there's multiple robots in the same place? Do they interact at all? How does that work?
1: They interact in that they're all, the fleet of robots is responding to the same kind of schedule of tasks, but there's not any uh, kind of robot to robot handoffs (laughs) at this point.
0: Got it. But they're splitting the work in some clever way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Now, one very specific question. What if somebody wanted to see Moxie? You wanted to just, (laughs) where did they go? What hospital did they go to if they want to have some hopes up? running across Moxie.
1: It's funny. Yeah, you know, it's unlike some products where you can like go to a, you know, shopping mall that has some cleaning robot. Like, you know, especially today hospitals are really hard to get into. You know, so even you know you have to get a, a special visitor badge and get back into the the places but our deployments are all in Texas right now but this year we're going to be expanding outside of Texas. But yeah so you could you know see go to some hospitals in Dallas and Austin and work your way in and then <laughs> see
0: a moxie. How, how many moxes are there right now?
1: That's not really something we share publicly
0: at the moment,
1: but you know we're in the early stage
0: of a growth. Are you able to share a specific hospital where, where there are moxies if somebody were actually curious to uh, to encounter one?
1: One of our public partners is HCA North Texas in Dallas. They have a division called Medical City Healthcare.
0: You want to see moxie, that's where, where you can go today.
1: Yeah, Medical City Healthcare.
0: <laughs> Might have a hard time getting in, but if you make it in, it's really cool. Moxie is deployed in hospitals. That's amazing. But there must also have been a time when you didn't know yet you're going to put your work into hospitals. Yeah. You've been working for a long time on robots that can be effective around humans. And at some point you decided, yes, I'm going to build a robot for a hospital. How did that come about and why?
1: Yeah. Um, It was a journey, but I actually got some funding from the National Science Foundation because a lot of my research over the years has been funded by the National Science Foundation into kind of the fundamental research in human-robot interaction and machine learning. And so we got a grant to really think about, like, well, what would the commercial applications of the kind of things we've been doing be? And so then, that National Science Foundation grant started exploring. You know, what are some of the places that are that middle ground of there's some structure for a robot to take advantage of, but so it's not a completely open-ended task, but it's more dynamic than. A warehouse. And so, you know, we thought about, you know, kind of a lot of, a lot of the ones I, I listed off, like restaurants, coffee shops, gyms, healthcare. And as soon as we started exploring hospitals, it became really clear that this is an area that there's a true need. There is a, There are, you know, challenges and logistical tasks that, you know, really high valued nurses are doing. And so that was the real motivation for us is when we found, you know, how hard nurses and frontline staff were working and you know, the feeling like, oh, these are some things that we can really do, but we can really help. And um, so then it kind of went from there.
0: How do you build up the trust? And the first time you bring a robot into a hospital, how, how do you make sure people actually want it?
1: We let that be really organic, you know, we kind of, we usually have a a set of staff that are the champions that have really been involved with like thinking about, like I said, that tour that Moxie's going on, like, this is the work you're going to do. And then from there, you have a couple of nurses that start using it. And then they start telling you, why are you going to run down there? Like, didn't you know Moxie could do that? And it just sort of builds from there. And so if we track like a new installation, you can kind of see like the first week, you might get, you know, 20 deliveries and then you get the, it just sort
0: of grows and grows and grows until it's like, you know,
1: hundred deliveries
0: a day or something. That's so interesting. You, you don't even set it up to do specific things. You just let, let the nurses and staff decide whenever, whenever they want to call upon Moxie and it just takes off.
1: Yeah. And so we usually come in with a good idea. Often from a previous site, we can say like, well, usually people like to send Moxie around to do these kinds of delivery tasks. And so that kind of gets them started. But but then, you know, invariably, like every site, there'll be new ideas like, well, could we send not Moxie to get that contrast liquid from radiology? And it's like, yeah.
0: Now you have Moxie doing a lot of helpful chores right now, but I got to imagine that even though Mox is already super helpful now that you have a bigger vision for many more things you, you could see it in the future. Can you share a little bit about that?
1: And we don't share a whole lot about the roadmap uh, precisely, but I think I you know what I can say is that we're really excited about being you know one of the first companies that really putting manipulation on a robot that's so close to people. And so I think we are kind of rolling out that roadmap of manipulation very slowly because it's so new to be doing it so close to people, but that's really where we want it. We want to be peeling more and more complexity and putting more and more autonomy into the tasks that the manipulation tasks that Moxie's doing.
0: As you think even broader, maybe beyond what you plan to do yourself, what do you see as some of the high impact things of, of robotics in healthcare that we could expect maybe in the next five years or 10 years? I mean,
1: I think the pandemic right now is really getting everyone to ask this exact question. It's like what, you know, what are the ways that we could be delivering better healthcare as a society? And you know, what are the ways that technology can really play a part in that? So I think. You know, some of the things that we're seeing were kind of just taking off, and now they're really being put into use. Is you know things like telemedicine, and so I think that is a place where today that's a very manual process, where you know uh, somebody wheels in an iPad for somebody to interact with. But you know, those telemedicine robot, remote telepresence robots, I think are going to really take off in healthcare they were kind of held back because of like information security and privacy. And I think that's always kind of, you know, made it hard for telepresence robots to not just be like thrown around everywhere in, in healthcare. But I think what people have realized is that, You know, those are just software problems. Like we can solve all those security and software problems, and then you can deliver a lot of care to everybody. So that's a space that I'm not in, but I see taking off. It's really, really interesting. Another is I think, in the same way that we're starting to see lots of voice interfaces and devices in our homes, and everybody's getting used to that, I think. I think we're going to start to see more of that entering healthcare. You know, you go to your doctor's office and a lot of times they're spending so much time just like typing with you sitting there. And so it drives me crazy. And it's like, so, and I know that like doctors and nurses, like everybody that has to do all of that documentation hates it too. So that's a big thing that I think AI and you know, not necessarily robotics, but, um, but AI and voice recognition and all of that technology is really going to play a huge part.
0: Yeah, I like those. And for the first one, tele-robotics, if, if, if you think about it, telemedicine, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think that if you're sick, you go to a place where a lot of other people are sick, <laughs> you hang out near them to then finally get yeah. a doctor or very often a call, maybe a, a local robot that could help a little bit with some basic you know, physical aspects could take care of it and a lot safer. Not to mention how to even get to the doctor's office if, if you're sick and you don't have anybody who's right there, to get you there. It seems a really good way to go. Absolutely.
1: And you know I think until the, until the pandemic, the biggest driver of telemedicine was like rural locations. So if you don't live very close to a big hospital, it's hard for you to get to an expert in some condition you have. So that was really the biggest driver of telemedicine. But now I think everybody's seeing that... You know, really, I don't want to be going to the hospital if I don't have to. I don't want to go to the doctor's office if I don't have to. Let's, let's put this virtual step as the first step.
0: So Moxie is active in, in hospitals. And of course, now the past year has been very, very different. COVID-19 is changing everybody's lives, but I would imagine even more changing lives in hospitals. I'm curious, what have you seen and how has it affected the role of Moxie?
1: It's changed everything and it's been incredible that we have been really had this front row seat to watch how amazing healthcare workers and hospitals and, you know, especially the frontline nurses have been the real, you know, heroes of this, of this pandemic and you know what we've seen is that, you know, just logistically from what Moxie is doing, we had a moment like right when the, the pandemic hit that you know, we're a startup, we can we can pivot on a dime if, if there's something else that they needed. So we were reaching out to all of our customers and saying, like, do you need something else? Like, do you want us to put a UV light on the robot? Do you, you want us to you want us to do something else? Is there something better that Moxie could be doing to help you? And what we kept hearing time and again was, no, actually, you know, we just need to deliver three times as much PPE around the hospital. That's exactly what we need Moxie to be doing. And the other thing that we learned was a lot of hospitals, and you know, over this past year and still, are completely changing the layout and and where patients are, you know, because of isolation. So you want to take and put you're going to change this whole wing to be a covid wing and then you're going to take that wing and now this wing can be used again at, at, for non covid patients so a lot of that like change has been happening and so that's been really interesting to see just from a robotics and deployment perspective like you know having a robot that is adaptable and able to kind of change its it's uh, exactly how it's working has been really really important to be able to help these hospitals kind of adapt and be resilient to all of the different changes. The bigger thing is we've just been humbled to be able to, to be part of the, you know, small part of, of the help that we can provide to, to nurses. It's been, it's been incredible to see.
0: Really nice that you're able to help that way. And also the fact that it's a robot, it seems it has another benefit, which is maybe people can space out more and Moxie can bring things to people.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's part of the benefit is really, you know, the hospital leaders are excited to say, you know, look, you know, we don't have as many people moving between different spaces in the hospital. So that's inherently safer. Another example is just COVID test samples. Like if you go into the ER of a hospital, you know, one of the very first things they do is give you a COVID test. And those tests have to be carried to the lab by hand, by somebody. And so they've been able to have Moxie do that instead. And then you don't have a person that's handling that sample. You you can just load it into, uh, give it to Moxie and take it to the lab. So there's these safety things that we've been able to find and be a really benefit to the staff as well.
0: That's amazing how that occurred to me. But the way people run around hospital crossing so many other people's paths and moxie can take away a lot of that distance covered and a lot of crossing. That's amazing. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Some of these things that you just described seem very feasible today, right? Speech recognition seems to work automatically making notes. I mean, sure, there are some challenges, but it seems like it should be feasible. What are some things that you think are still very hard and where we we will need some new new breakthroughs, but that you you hope we can get to in the kind of AI robotics healthcare space?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the holy grail for healthcare and robotics and, and healthcare is, is really helping people in their homes is that if it's elder care or if it's helping somebody who's recovering from a surgery, like there's so much help that people need. And so much of it is, you know, just kind of logistical help. Like, you know, you're recovering from a, a surgery. You can't walk around your house. You just need you know, help bringing things from point A to point B. Or if you're, you know, an older adult, if you're aging at home and you can't fully take care of yourself, just the activities of daily living, you know, these are the things that that I dream of, you know, robots and AI being able to help out with one day. And, you know, we have to tackle all of those hard problems about, you know, being able to send a robot into, you know, your house. I've never seen your house. How do I, how do I program a robot to do anything in your house when I don't know what your house looks like?
0: We are dropping new interviews every week, so subscribe to The Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI, robotics, and the people bringing them into the real world. I was reading one of your papers on reinforcement learning with inaccurate feedback, where where a robot learns from its trial and error, From feedback. And but you were specifically investigating inaccurate feedback. Can you say a bit more about why that matters and and the context there?
1: Yeah, reinforcement learning, I think, is a really interesting area because people think of it as one of the branches of machine learning that is most similar to and it has a lot of similarities, or, or people like to, you can easily conceptualize how animals or people learn that way. Like you try something, it worked or it didn't work out. I'm going to try it again a different way. So I think there's something really appealing about that for reinforcement learning. And so for me, I'm interested in how people are going to interact with robots that are learning. So for me, reinforcement learning was always an interesting paradigm because If it's a machine learning algorithm that people can easily conceptualize, then people are going to be able to interact with that machine learning algorithm and give it the right feedback or you know, give it the right demonstrations because then they can kind of conceptualize what the robot's gonna do with that. But then when you anytime you add people to an algorithm or a robot or or a process, that's never gonna be exactly perfect, right? People are gonna make mistakes or they're gonna tell the robot, you're trying to teach the robot to fry an egg and you accidentally give bad feedback when it did the right thing or you give good feedback when it did the wrong thing. And so that can be really confusing for the robot because it's expecting that it's getting the right feedback. And then it's like, oh, I'm not supposed to do that. Okay. I'll never do that again. And so that's kind of the, that's the reason that my student, Taylor kelser fuckner was interested in exploring that area of like, well, what do we even do when you have an inaccurate person? And what are some of the reasons that people might give inaccurate feedback
0: Reminds me of uh, sometimes you have students in class who are clever enough to, to question you as, as me, you as a professor. And of course, everybody gets something wrong every now and then. And some students actually will call you out on it. And it sounds like you're helping teach robots the same skill to, to call it out somehow or understand. Exactly,
1: question authority. <laughs> the places where this is really necessary is, and the one that I think is gonna come up with robotics a lot is if you think about the way that the way that a robot moves around, and if the robot has an arm and it has, you know, six degrees of freedom, you know, that arm can move around in a particular way, but it's not going to move around in the same way that my arm moves. And so if I'm giving feedback to that robot about, you know, whether it should move its elbow up or down, like I may have a idea about how the robot should move, but it, it might be based on how my arm moves. And so if I'm telling the robot to move its elbow up, but really the best way for the robot to do it is to go down and around or something. Those are the kind of inaccuracies that the person might have about the robot that would cause them to give bad feedback. And once you know that, and that was kind of the, the crux of Taylor's work is like, once you figure out the, the kind of parts of the state space or the parts of the robot's motion space that the person gives inaccurate feedback, then you can kind of say like, oh, the person always tells me to go you know, that it's bad to put my elbow up. It's actually good. And you can kind of flip that feedback and you're like, oh, I know Peter, Peter's telling me this is bad, but I know it's good. And so I'm just going to, I'm just going to do the, the right thing.
0: Ultimately, we want robots to solve problems that we as humans cannot solve, right? Exactly. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to just have some hunches, but the robot should ideally take it to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. Now, talk about interacting with robots. Back when I was a student at, um, at Stanford, there was a stair robot, which was the robot that was supposed to kind of be around in the office, the, I mean, the university and, and fetch things. And I was just catching up with uh, Olga Rusukovsky. She's now a professor at Princeton and we are talking about that robot. And she said, that robot was very cool in many ways, but it turns out that when she asked the robot to go fetch a mug, the robot would not react at all. Whereas if anybody else asked, the robot would react and go get the coffee mug. And ultimately came down to her being a woman having a very different voice from everybody else in the lab who had a male voice And so I'm kind of curious, in in your experience, uh, as you build robots to interact with people, what are some similar things you might have run into or that you need to be really careful about?
1: Yeah, let's see. I mean, voice is a really good one. You know, I had the same exact experience as a grad student. You know, I had to train my own voice models for... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for all of the, the robots that I interacted with in the lab. We used you know, back in the day, the, the Nuance platform for speech recognition and it came with its like default model. But if you wanted it to be better, you could train your own voice model. And so I remember I always had to do that. So voice and expecting there to be a broader range of pitch. and But also, you know, one of the things we've thought about uh, even with Moxie is height like the average height of women and and men, and you know, wh- you know, what height should Moxie be at in order to not be too tall and uh, assuming, um, especially since you know, a large you know, part of the population that we're you know, our end users are uh, you know, predominantly women in nursing. So that was an interesting one that I hadn't ever thought about in uh, the academic and research setting. And sometimes I think. We always look at whether there are gender differences in like the ways that people are providing feedback to a robot learner. Some of this, you know, reinforcement learning feedback in my work, we've never found like strong gender differences, but it hasn't been something that we've, you know, really deeply explored, you know, just the way that people teach and the kind of way that people give feedback is likely to have some gender differences as well.
0: The thing I'm wondering about, which must come up in, in hospitals in interactions is I imagine the robot is sometimes the robot might not be the one delivering bad news or, or good news. But there's a lot of bad and good news going around in hospitals and the robot is around all those emotions. Do you see the robot playing any role in that in the future?
1: Yeah, so it is an, a real opportunity, I think, to be an empathetic partner in this, uh, in this environment. What we've seen right now is that right now this is, it's a very novel and new thing that people see in the hospital kind of for the first time. And so it does bring this moment of levity and you might be dealing with a really hard situation, but then you get like this little, a little distraction and little thought about the future and a little bit of excitement. And so that I think has been one piece that we've seen. That's been really nice. Even for the nursing staff that interact with Moxie every day, yeah, we'll get comments sometimes around kind a really hard day. It's great that that Moxie's always smiling. <laughs> it's like that kind of you know it's it's good that that's good it's good to have Moxie's like hard eyes around on such a hard day. So I think there is this opportunity that you know even though it's a really stressful and sometimes difficult environment, that you know we're all still humans and we do want to kind of disconnect and and have some levity.
0: Going back to to the company as a whole, Diligent Robotics, which is a company behind Moxie, and you're the co-founder and CEO of Diligent Robotics. Kind of curious, from an entrepreneur's point of view, you've always been working on making robots towards robots that can help out and help humans. But when when did you just say, "Hey, it's it's time to build a company"? How did that go?
1: How did that go? <laughs> uh, it's great question. Honestly, it felt like there was a distinct change in... So robotics in general is... It's a lot of different things coming together. It's a big system. You have to have the right kinds of cameras and you have to have the right kinds of motors and you have to have the right kinds of software that lets the robot map with a laser and you have to have the right kind of software that lets the arm move. And and a lot of these pieces have been making advances over the last 10 years or so such that... You know so much of so many of the pieces are becoming so much more reliable to be used every day and and not break and not have to be you know restarted and yeah you know, so that's I think what we started noticing is that there are there is an opportunity to really you know do the engineering work to to take things that that work pretty well in the in the research lab and and get it to be this robust and reliable product and so i think it was you know the advances that that i kind of saw over you know, in both perception and you know, actuator, you know, motors getting much more, much cheaper and perception getting, you know, cameras getting much cheaper and better that, you know, at least got the wheels turning and then the rest is history. And we could just kind of, it was a slow uh, kind of probably two-year process of thinking about starting a company and then finally doing
0: it. What, what do you think was the trigger? Was, was it talking with your ultimate co-founders? What, what made it actually happen, you think?
1: So we just kept taking the next step. We just kept saying, "Well, this still feels like a good idea. Let's what's the next thing we would do?" And so, and so it went from like a brainstorm session to, "Well, this still feels like a good idea. What's the next thing we do?" Well, let's get some like tiny bit of money from the National Science Foundation. This feels like a good idea. What's the next thing? Let's get a bigger amount of money from the National Science Foundation, and that ended up being like this. Um, SBIR grant that led us, which is, you know, the way the National Science Foundation funds like early, early, early stage companies. So we, we actually formed the company and got this research grant. And that one, we actually put robots into hospitals for the first time. And we it was a you know, great collaboration with UT Austin as well, because they let us um, rent essentially the equipment in my lab and borrow it for a day or a week at a time. And so we would take these robots from my lab at UT Austin, and we would put them in a hospital in here in Austin um, with some really innovative um, nurse leaders who somehow convinced their CEOs that it was fine to let these these women these women with this robot come and you know see what nurses think but from that we had all this great information from nurses about like what do they what do they spend their time doing what what do they think that robots would do and we also had feasibility demonstrations at the like the end of that day or week that we were there we'd take some video of the robot going into a supply closet and doing something and you know coming out and dropping something off and and that was what really that feasibility and what, like when we saw the robots like actually like, we're here in a hospital the robot is doing things that we've only ever done in the lab and it's working here we can do this and so that's when we really kind of got the conviction to go out and raise capital. We found some amazing partners in True Ventures who believed in us. And from that, like I had this camera from my phone in the hospital, like the best demonstration that we ever had in the hospital. Like I just whipped out my phone really quick and, like, oh my gosh, that's happening. And it was this terrible video because I'm like shaking because I'm so excited, I'm not really looking. And so I had this like terrible shaky webcam video that that we went around and talked to investors and they believed in our vision.
0: <laughs> I think it makes sense because I mean, it's rare to see a robot do something in the real world and there you are, and you you already you already had it working. By the time you knocked at their door, you you already had a robot that was already actually functional.
1: Yeah. And you know, of course it was all like duct tape and glue and the software side. So we had like <laughs> <laughs> a lot of work to do to make it like actually robust and reliable every day. But, you know, for me, that was the point where I was like, oh, this is, it's ready. It's, we can, we can make this happen.
0: Now, once you take that money, there's kind of no turning back. <laughs> there's
1: no turning back.
0: <laughs> the wheels are in motion. But as I understand it, you're all in, but at the same time, you are actually juggling a lot of things. If I, if I understand correctly, you are, founder CEO of Diligent. At the same time, you're still professor at UT Austin. And I checked your Google Scholar. You're publishing at a very high level. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I have some amazing postdocs and students. So yeah, that's that's a lot going on. Wow. Yeah.
1: I I will say that, yeah, I also have an amazing uh, professor husband who uh, is a true 50-50 partner in this journey.
0: (laughs) Which is still rare, unfortunately. I'm glad you're in that situation. That's really nice to hear. So as you think about Diligent, as the company, and as you went through your journey, and you think about maybe other robotics entrepreneurs or budding robotics entrepreneurs, are are there any lessons from your journey so far that might be good to share.
1: I think the the story I just told about like really proving out the hardware, doing as much as you can to prove out the direction that you want to go before you start that, you know, funded journey that then has a very specific timeline. Like I think the fact that we took, we took a while, we took like two and a half years to really say, okay, now it's time to like take funding and and really go because after you after you start down a path it becomes harder to and especially with robotics every change that you want to make to the robot is you know, it takes a long time to order parts and pieces and change anything about what you're doing so everything you can do to get conviction and certainty around your idea I think the other piece of advice is to focus on a whole solution, like a whole, you've got, you want to think about a a customer and a problem that they have and the end to end, like the whole solution that you're going to provide because people like people don't know what to do with robots they need your help like as a company you have to provide that whole solution like you can't just say i'm going to deliver you a robot and it's going to be awesome and you're going to have to figure out how to work it into your company and you're in your hospital or in your restaurant like at this point with these earth first companies these first service robot companies you're seeing you know a lot of the companies that are being successful are are providing that like whole end-to-end solution for a customer whether it's you know security robots and you're or, you know, you're providing that end-to-end solution or hospital robots and you're providing that end-to-end solution or Cleaning robots, and you know, so thinking about the customer's whole journey, I think, is really eye opening. If if you're if you're used to only thinking about robots, and you're and then you have to start thinking about like the whole environment that the robot lives in, it's interesting. Um, and it's it's, but it's a big part of the problem.
0: I will say it's my experience too is that customer doesn't really care whether it's a robot or not; they just want help. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And if it feels too hard, if it feels too hard
0: to do it with a robot, they'll find another way to fix the problem. Right. So. Yeah. It's uh, it's very interesting. And as you think about kind of growing the team and any thoughts on that, as you've been growing the team at diligent, any advice?
1: I mean, it's super important. I, I we spend so much time on hiring and every hire we, I need everybody, you know, for every engineering hire, we would have, we would have people come to Austin, go out to dinner, make sure that it's going to be you know, somebody that's it's really going to be a good fit for the team. And I think you know, we've had a big focus on diversity of ideas and backgrounds and just every, every dimension of diversity is, is something that we really focus on. And it's hard. It's you know, it's funny because like Vivian and I, my co-founder is Vivian Chu. So we started the company as two women and we always joked in the early days, like, oh, we have a diversity problem. We got to go find some guys to get to work with us around here. But it's then it become like once you start growing the company, it becomes very easy to to get, you know, we just have to move fast and hire as many people as possible, hire the best people possible, hire anybody we can find. And it becomes if you don't, if you don't make diversity something that you're thinking about, and you really make sure you're like say, oh, well, let's make sure that we're actually interviewing a diverse set of candidates. We found that it's like even as two women, it, like we're not, you, we have to make diversity an active part of our hiring process. So
0: sounds like you're succeeding at it. And can you maybe describe some of the kind of positive consequences you're seeing in that?
1: Oh, so one thing that I think. Is nice about having we have a very diverse team and the the mutual respect that you see, and you know, there's you know, we have this uh yes and culture where it's like you know, somebody you can disagree with people, and there's not just one way to do things, is what you get out of a diverse set of people, is you get a diverse set of ideas, and then you get the respect that comes from people hearing you know, multiple perspectives. And so that just becomes kind of ingrained in the culture and it's really nice. And I think, you know, then you have the opportunity for more good ideas to come to the forefront. And it's fun because, you know, one of the best examples that Vivian always points to is that we had somebody on the team that didn't have a robotics background you know, strong software background and, you know, they came and, you know, one of the first things they did was like comment on like the structure of the robotics code base. And they're like, well, why would you do it that way? And then, you know, the robotics people are like, well, because you always do it that way. And, you know, it's, it's nice to sit back and be like, well, why do we do it that way? That's a good idea. We should think about it. And so that, that idea that, you know, maybe, maybe there's a better way is, is it's just easier to come about if you have a really diverse
0: group. One thing I'm curious about, and I, I really don't know much about at all, even when, when I was trying to research things uh, for our conversation here, is, is is your background. As I was researching, I could find PhD at MIT, but I couldn't find much before that. What led you to then be you know, a robotics PhD student at MIT and, and then to where you are now?
1: I grew up in a few different places. My dad is in the oil industry, so we kind of moved around a little bit. But then we ended up, once he landed a job in Houston, big oil city. We didn't have to move anymore. And so I grew up in Houston and I was pretty normal. I I was always into math and science. And so I knew I wanted to go into engineering and that's about it. Like I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Definitely. I was not in any robotics clubs or coding clubs or any of that. So I always tell people that are asking me like, what should I have my elementary kids do to, to end up to, I'm like, they don't have to do anything. I didn't start doing any of that until grad school. <laughs> it's like, you can definitely, you know, come come at it from a lot of different ways. I mean, I was captain of my dance team in high school. Like that's like, I was I was definitely, you know, I had a I had a very kind of diverse childhood background.
0: I gotta imagine what we just described. In fact, that you get many of those questions, like a lot of parents, I mean, you're a parent. So a lot of your friend parents probably ask you, How can my daughter...
1: Yeah, like what robotics club should I... Yeah, my fourth grader had a flyer come home about like an AI class for fourth graders. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) I'm looking at this and I'm like we haven't done calculus yet. (laughs) How are we going to (laughs) do? I don't know. So, so I think people get, they, they really want to set their kids up for success. And I get that. And I, you know, obviously I want to also, but you know, my advice is always focus on the fundamentals. Let's, you know, let's work on multiplication, get really good at that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the foundations keep coming back and back If you look at most advanced things today in AI, actually, if anything, are relatively simple compared to some other research domains in terms of what you need to do. It's very foundational. It's not something that takes necessarily hundreds of years of expertise to build up, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, probability. It takes people a really long time to get probability.
0: Gotta imagine, though, that even though you might not have been in robotics clubs and so forth, maybe there was still something else going on. I don't know. Like, it sounds like you're always very curious, and looking to learn more. you think that's the secret? And how do you think people might instill that in their kids?
1: I, I think the other way that I, I see it is like, if I look at, if I have to draw a line t- uh, towards everything that I've done in my career, it's like really opportunistic too. It's like, you know, seeing something be like, oh, that can be interesting. And then like, go for it. So like not feeling like, well, I decided I was going to be this. So like a, one example for me is like, I went to... Like I knew I wanted to do engineering, but I didn't know what kind of engineering. And then you know I started doing electrical and computer engineering at UT Austin. And I you know got a job during college, like in the summers and every every once in a while in the semester at, at IBM, a big company here in Austin. And I was part of the like chip design group at IBM, and we were writing software to like test that chips were being built the right way. And that was really fun because I got to learn how to program. Like, that was really how I learned how to program. We did a ton of C++ code. And that was like, I, like, that was really the first time I coded was like learning on the job at IBM. And so then here I was an electrical engineer. I was like, oh, but I actually really like coding. Like, I think that's what I'm going to do. And so, you know, not being, you know, stuck in what you what you said you were going to do, but like open to like, oh, well, I like this better. This is fun. This is good. But then I realized I didn't want to build chips anymore. I wanted to work on something a little higher up on the computer.
0: <laughs> There's a lot you can do there though. And then you specifically chose to go after how robots interact with, with humans. Where do you think that specific interest came from?
1: Yeah. well, so that one, that was interesting because I was there as a college student at IBM, you know, writing a ton of simulation software for chips and you know trying to the, the best part about that job, just to, for a tiny tangent, is that you get to come in and be like this junior engineer and you're doing this like test code. For the, like, senior engineers that are writing this, like, you know, they've been writing this, like, it's called it was BLSI to program chips. And, you know, if you find a bug, you get to go to this, like, really senior engineer and you're like, I'm sorry, sir, that I, uh, I found a bug in your code. And they're like, no, you didn't. And you... <laughs> <laughs> so you have to like document it like so hard. But I still remember to this day, like I, I, I one time I found a bug in like this like really top guy that never got. He never had any bugs in his code, but I got to I ran the test that I got to go to the one and be the one that found it. But So that I realized at some point in that job that it wasn't like going to be my career. And, you know, you're in college and you're like, what do I do next? And so I thought grad school. So I really, I should go to grad school and kind of think about what I want to, what I want to do with this foundation. I know I'm interested in computer software and programming. And then I started just reading a lot of books and I um, I had two books that led me to um, decide that the MIT Media Lab was where I wanted to be. I read, I read a book by Don Norman called Things That Make Us Smart, which is still one of my favorite books. And um, it is all about it's really all about like design and human computer interaction, but it's really about just the design of things and how you can make a door handle that people know how to interact with, or you can make a door handle that's confusing and people are there like, how do I interact with this thing? And so you know, that book was the first time I really thought about design and, you know, form and function and, and what can be communicated through design. And I found that fascinating. And then I read the book, Affective computing by Roz Picard. Um, and that was all about how you could make it, you could make computers understand emotions and that people's emotions in the end were signals. And you know, Roz's background was signal processing and electrical engineering. And here I was like, just coming out of its electrical engineering degree, I'm like this is the coolest electrical engineering person I've ever met to like somebody who's like taking emotions as a signal processing problem. So like those two things really made me say like, there's something here around building machines that are gonna be easy to interact with. And, and I thought, you know, if I'm gonna, I wanna build machines that are, have this like Don Norman, like form versus function, and, and so then that led me to the, the media lab where it's was just like the Mecca of building machines that are easy to interact with. And then the rest is history. I ran into Cynthia Brazil and I saw her social robots and I was like, I'm done. This is it. This is what I'm doing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Here you are bringing them into the real world in hospitals, which I mean, must have been a dream as a PhD student that it's happening. Exactly. It's, it's kind
1: of, it's hard. It's kind of crazy.
0: Andrea, this has been just absolutely amazing conversation. So thankful to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's been really fun. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm wishing you all the best with Dilgen, Moxie, and your efforts as a professor and at home as a parent. And uh, hopefully we can cross paths again in, uh, in real life uh, soonish.
1: I know, one day soon. <laughs>
0: We are dropping new interviews every week, so subscribe to The Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI and the people bring it into the real world.